Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Our journalism is powered by you, not by any corporation or government. That means we count on your support to produce our daily news hour. Please make your donation of $5 or $10 or more at democracynow.org. Every dollar makes a difference. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! We are receiving the Nobel Peace Prize during the war started by Russia. This war has been going on for eight years, nine months and 21 days. For millions of people, such words as shelling, torture, deportation, filtration camps have become commonplace. The Nobel Peace Prizes have been awarded to human rights groups in Ukraine and Russia, as well as an imprisoned activist in Belarus. We'll air part of Saturday's award ceremony in Oslo. Then Lowndes County and the Road to Black Power. A new documentary looks at the pivotal role one county in Alabama played in the Black Power movement. It was a dangerous time. People were followed. People could lose their jobs. A lot of black people came up missing. That's why it's called Blood Lounge. It is called that because of the absolute unrelenting violence if you're trying to register to vote. They were literally putting their lives on the line. And they still organize, and still they try and vote. We wanted a movement that would survive the loss of our lives. All that and more, coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. President Biden pledged to help strengthen Ukraine's air defense system as he and other G7 heads of state spoke with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky ahead of a virtual summit today. The talks come after another weekend of heavy fighting in Ukraine. Russia launched a drone attack on the port city of Odessa Saturday, cutting power to one and a half million people as the winter descends. Ukrainian forces, meanwhile, struck the southern Russian-occupied city of Melitopol, reported using U.S.-supplied long-range HIMARS rockets. Ukraine also reported it killed a number of fighters from the private military Wagner Group after targeting its headquarters in the Russian-occupied Luhansk region. Meanwhile, a Russian court sentenced prominent Kremlin critic Ilya Yashin to over eight years in prison for spreading so-called fake news after he spoke out in April about suspected Russian war crimes in the Ukrainian town of Bucha. Yashin's lawyer said they'll appeal the verdict. The prosecutors haven't proven that the information conveyed was a lie or that it was deliberately wrongful, or that his motivation, as they say, was political hatred. In Peru, two teenagers were killed Sunday in the Andean city of Andahuelas as police tried to quell protests demanding the release of ousted leftist President Pedro Castillo, calling for new elections to be moved up. At least 20 others were injured. My request to the Minister of the Interior is to stop the bullets. Please, we cannot cover the sun with a finger. We must investigate the wounds of all those who are wounded by pellets, bullets or, I don't know, stones. Justice must be served. 
Following the unrest, newly appointed President Dina Baluarte announced she would move elections up by two years to April 2024. The Department of Transportation has launched an investigation in Kansas after a rupture in the Keystone Pipeline caused a massive oil spill 160 miles north of Wichita. The pipeline's operator, TC Energy, formerly known as TransCanada, estimated some 588,000 gallons of oil spilled into a natural waterway. That's nearly enough to fill an Olympic-sized swimming pool. It's the largest U.S. crude oil spill in nearly a decade and the worst in the history of the Keystone Pipeline, which carries oil from Canada's tar sands to refineries in Illinois and the Gulf Coast. In Canada, hundreds of people marched to the streets of Montreal on Saturday to demand a strong agreement as the U.N. holds a major summit on protecting wildlife. The U.N. Biodiversity Conference, known as COP15, seeks to protect an estimated one million plant and animal species threatened by extinction, most of them due to human activity. Activist Charlene George of the Salk Nation says any deal needs to ensure the rights of indigenous people who've worked for millennia to protect their lands. Today is about the youth and they're having a voice and it's a really important voice because some other people are afraid to stand up and the youth have the passion to be the warriors and to say the words and challenge. They're the ones that's going to inherit all of this mess. The FBI says it's arrested the man accused of building the bomb used to bring down Pan Am Flight 103 more than three decades ago and will extradite him to the United States. Former Libyan intelligence operative Abu Aguila Mohamed Massoud was being held in a Libyan prison on unrelated charges. It's not clear how the U.S. took him into custody. The 1988 bombing over Lockerbie, Scotland, killed all 259 people aboard as well as 11 people on the ground. The CDC has made the bivalent COVID-19 booster available for children and babies six months to five years old following approval last week by the FDA. The booster was formulated to tackle Omicron subvariants, though around 90 percent of children in this age group have yet to get any COVID vaccines. This comes as COVID numbers are on the rise, with daily deaths averaging over 460 in the United States, around one and a half times higher than the previous week, and hospitalization levels not seen since last winter's surge. Officials across the U.S. are urging people to wear masks while indoors to protect against the triple-demic of COVID, flu, and RSV. In related news, a congressional report released Friday accuses the Trump administration of a, quote, persistent pattern of political interference which undermined the nation's ability to respond to the pandemic. The report says the U.S. was vastly underprepared for a public health crisis due in part to, quote, chronic underfunding and longstanding health disparities, unquote. COVID's claimed the lives of some 1.09 million people in the United States in less than three years. In Arizona, immigration and environmental activists are denouncing the illegal construction of a makeshift wall along the U.S.-Mexico border built with double-stacked shipping containers, pieces of metal, and razor wire. The efforts are being led by Republican Governor Doug Ducey, whose government has been trying to fill up the gaps left in former President Trump's unfinished border wall.
Advocates have led mounting actions to block its construction, as they say the wall is destroying precious desert biodiversity and is forcing asylum seekers to find even more dangerous routes to come to the U.S. for refuge. This is immigrant rights activist Corinna Ruiz, executive director of the Arizona Dream Act Coalition. I think it's more of a statement that uh, Governor Ducey wants to make um, because they want to continue with the anti-immigrant rhetoric in the border. Um, I believe that the solution is immigration reform. Um, we've been saying it. There has to be a pathway, not just for those of us that are in the country already, but also for those that are coming in. Here in New York City, part-time faculty members at the New School have ended their nearly month-long strike after reaching a tentative deal, including the first pay raise in four years and improved health care benefits. The strike brought the New School to a standstill, as the vast majority of its faculty is made up of adjuncts. Last week, dozens of students started occupying a university building in solidarity with the strike, and parents threatened to sue the New School. In Los Angeles disgrace, Councilmember Kevin DeLeon has come under renewed fire after a video posted on Twitter shows him assaulting an activist. Protesters have been demanding DeLeon resign after he and other officials were caught on a leaked audio tape making racist remarks against black and indigenous people. In the video, DeLeon, who was attending a community holiday event, is confronted by a group of protesters, then violently shoves black community organizer Jason Reedy to the ground, even though Reedy had his hands up in the air. Elsewhere in Los Angeles, Karen Bass made history Sunday as she was sworn in as the city's first woman mayor and just second black mayor. She was sworn in by another historic Californian, Vice President Kamala Harris. Mayor Bass is declaring a state of emergency starting today to address the crisis facing thousands of unhoused people. If we just focus on bringing people inside and comprehensively addressing their needs and moving them to permanent housing with a way to pay their bills, we will save lives and we will save our city. And this is my mission as your mayor. But housing activists warn the move will only lead to the displacement and further marginalization of unhoused people. Ahead of Bass's swearing-in, people were forced to vacate an encampment for the unhoused across from Los Angeles City Hall. Due to heavy rains, the ceremony was ultimately relocated to another indoor site. And pioneering black feminist Dorothy Pittman Hughes has died at the age of 84. She co-founded Ms. Magazine with Gloria Steinem in the 70s. The duo also toured the country to speak about the women's movement. Hughes was a passionate advocate for racial justice as well as for children and families, starting a cooperative daycare and co-founding the New York City Agency for Child Development. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The Nobel Peace Prizes were given out Saturday on International Human Rights Day in Oslo, Norway. The awards went to the Ukrainian organization Center for Civil Liberties, the Russian group Memorial, and Alice Bielatsky, 
imprisoned human rights activists in Belarus. The Nobel Peace Prize ceremony came nearly 10 months after Russia invaded Ukraine. On the same day as the Nobel ceremony, Russia launched a drone strike on the Ukrainian port city of Odessa, cutting power to one and a half million people. Millions of Ukrainians face a winter without heat or electricity after Russian strikes on civilian infrastructure. We begin today's show airing excerpts of the speeches from Saturday's Nobel Peace Prize ceremony. This is Alexandra Matvichuk, the head of the Center for Civil Liberties in Ukraine. We are receiving the Nobel Peace Prize during the war started by Russia. This war has been going on for eight years, nine months and 21 days. For millions of people, such words as shelling, torture, deportation, filtration camps have become commonplace. But there are no words which can express the pain of a mother who lost her newborn son in a shelling of a maternity ward. A moment ago, she was caressing her baby, calling him by his name, breastfeeding him, inhaling his smell, and the next moment a Russian missile destroyed her entire universe, and now her beloved and her longed-for baby lies in the smallest coffin in the world. How can we make human rights meaningful again? Peace, progress, and human rights are inextricably linked. A state that kills journalists, imprisons activists, or disperses peaceful demonstrations poses a threat not only to its citizens. Such a state poses a threat to the entire region and peace in the world as a whole. Therefore, the world must adequately respond to systemic violations. In political decision-making, human rights must be as important as economic benefits or security. These approach should be applied in foreign policy, too. Russia, that has been consistently destroying its own civil society, illustrates this very well. But the countries of the democratic world have long turned a blind eye to this. They continued to shake hands with the Russian leadership, build gas pipelines and conduct business as usual. For decades, Russian troops have been committing crimes in different countries, but they always got away with this. The world has not even adequately responded to the act of aggression and annexation of Crimea, which were the first such cases in post-war Europe. Russia believed that they could do whatever they want. Now Russia is deliberately inflicting harm on civilians aiming to stop our resistance and occupy Ukraine. Russian troops intentionally destroy residential buildings, churches, schools, hospitals, shell evacuation corridors, but people in filtration camps carry out forced deportations, kidnap, torture and kill people in occupied territories. The Russian people will be responsible for this disgraceful page of their history and their desire to forcefully restore the former empire. 
people of Ukraine want peace more than anyone else in the world. But peace cannot be reached by country under attack laying down its arms. This would not be peace, but occupation. After the liberation of Buchi, we found a lot of civilians murdered in the streets and courtyards of their homes. These people were unarmed. We must stop pretending deferred military threats are, quote, political compromises. The democratic world has grown accustomed to making concessions to dictatorships, and that is why the willingness of the Ukrainian people to resist Russian imperialism is so important. We will not leave people in occupied territories to be killed and tortured. People's lives cannot be called political compromise. Fighting for peace does not mean yield to pressure of the aggressor. It means protecting people from its cruelty. In this war, we are fighting for freedom in every meaning of the word, and for it we are paying for the highest possible price. We, Ukrainian citizens of all nationalities, should not discuss our right to a sovereign and independent Ukrainian state and development of the Ukrainian language and culture. As human beings, we do not need approval of our right to determine our own identity and make our own democracy. This is not a war between two states. It is a war of two systems, authoritarianism and democracy. We are fighting for the opportunity to build a state in which everyone's rights are protected, authorities are accountable, courts are independent, and the police do not beat peaceful students' demonstrations in Central Square of the capital. We do not want our children to go through wars and suffering. So as parents, we have to assume the responsibility and act, not to shift it on our children. Humanity has a chance to overcome global crisis and build a new philosophy of life. It's time to assume the responsibility. We don't know how much of the time we still have. And since this Nobel Peace Prize ceremony takes place during the war, I will allow myself to reach out to people around the world and call for solidarity. You don't have to be Ukrainians to support Ukraine. It is enough just to be humans. That was Oleksandra Matvichuk, the head of the Center for Civil Liberties in Ukraine, which received the Nobel Peace Prize on Saturday. The Russian Human Rights Group Memorial also won the Nobel Peace Prize. This is the Russian human rights activist Jan Ryczynski of Memorial. Memorial's human rights defense work has included the search for the missing investigation of extrajudicial executions and reporting on forced disappearances. It has included years of help for refugees and the forcibly displaced due to these conflicts. Memorial has been carrying out the monitoring of political repression and legal assistance for political prisoners. Today, the number of political prisoners in Russia is more than the total number in all of the Soviet Union at the beginning of the period of the perestroika in the 1980s. The struggle for freedom has continued since the Soviet regime. Here, the past and the present come together. In the Soviet Empire, any attempts by peoples to fight for national independence or even simply manifest a national consciousness that did not fit the Soviet ideological dogma 
were declared to be bourgeois nationalism and were brutally suppressed. After the collapse of the USSR, the states that formed on this territory had their own historical narratives that did not coincide with the official Soviet historical mythology. And soon after Vladimir Putin came to power, the new Russian leadership and his ideological servants began violent and aggressive memory wars against their neighbors, Estonia, Latvia, Ukraine, while fully using old Soviet stereotypes and labels. Of course, this was done for the sake not of historical truth, but for their own political interests. The result was that the Russian propaganda against nationalism and what Putin's regime called Banderaism, after a far right-wing Ukrainian nationalist, became the ideological justification for the insane and criminal war of aggression against Ukraine. One of the first victims of this madness was the historical memory of Russia itself. Indeed, in order to pass off aggression against a neighboring country as fighting fascism, it was necessary to twist the minds of Russian citizens by swapping the concepts of fascism and anti-fascism. Now the Russian mass media refer to the unprovoked armed invasion of a neighboring country, the annexation of territories, terror against civilians in the occupied areas, and war crimes as justified by the need to fight fascism. Hatred is incited against Ukraine, its culture and language are publicly declared declared inferior, and the Ukrainian people are deemed not to have a separate identity from Russians. Resistance to Russia is called fascism. Such propaganda absolutely contradicts the historical experience of Russia and devalues and distorts the memory of the truly anti-fascist war of 1941-1945 and the Soviet soldiers who fought against Hitler. The words Russian soldier in the minds of many people will now be associated not with those who fought against Hitler, but those who sowed death and destruction on Ukrainian soil. That was Jan Ryczynski of the Russian Human Rights Group Memorial, one of the three recipients of the Nobel Peace Prize this year. The third winner was Alas Bielatsky, a human rights activist imprisoned in Belarus. He was detained there after the 2020 protests against the re-election of President Alexander Lukashenko. Bielatsky remains in jail without trial and faced his up to 12 years if convicted. At the Nobel Awards ceremony in Oslo Saturday, his wife Natalia Pinchuk delivered the speech on behalf of her imprisoned husband. I want to express my profound gratitude to the Norwegian Nobel Committee, whose decisions strengthen Alice and his committee to stand firm in his conviction and gives hope to all Belarusians that they can count on the democratic world's solidarity in the fight for their rights, no matter the length of struggle. Not only is Alice in prison, but there are also thousands of Belarusians, tens of thousands of repressed, unjustly imprisoned for their civic action and beliefs across the country. Hundreds of thousands have been forced to flee the country for the mere reason that they wanted to live in a democratic state. Unfortunately, the war of the authorities against their own people, language, history, and democratic values has been waged in Belarus for years. I say this here with supreme pain and vigilance as today's political and military events threaten Belarus with the loss of statehood and independence.
Unfortunately, the authorities choose to engage with society through the use of force, grenades, batons, stun guns, endless arrests and torture. There is no effort or talk about national compromise or dialogue. They persecute girls and boys, women and men, minors and elderly people. The inhumane face of system reigns in Belarusian prisons, especially for those who dreamed of being free people. In light of such a situation, it is no coincidence that the authorities arrested Alice and his associates from the Humane Rights Center, Vyazna, for their democratic beliefs and human rights activities. Marfa Rapkova, Valiancin Stefanovic, Uladzimir Lapkovic, Leonid Sudalenka, Andrei Chapiuk, and other human rights defenders are behind bars. Alice could not convey the text of his speech from prison, but he managed to tell me just a couple of words. Therefore, I will share with you his thoughts, both the latest and those recorded earlier. These are fragments of his previous statements, writings, and reflections. Here are his reflections about the past and future of Belarus, about human rights, about the fate of peace and freedom. So, I pass the floor to Alice. In my homeland, the entirety of Belarus is in a prison. Journalists, political scientists, trade union leaders are in jail. There are many of my acquaintances and friends among them. The court works like a conveyor belt. Convicts are transported to penal colonies and new waves of political prisoners take their place. This award belongs to all my human rights defender friends, all civic activists, tens of thousands of Belarusians who have gone through beatings, torture, arrests, prison. This award belongs to millions of Belarusian citizens who stood up and took action in the streets and online to defend their civil rights. It highlights the dramatic situation and struggle for human rights in this country. I recently had a short dialogue. When will you be released? They asked me. I am already free in my soul, was my reply. That's Natalia Pinchuk, wife of imprisoned Belarusian human rights activist Alas Bielyatsky, delivering her husband's Nobel Peace Prize speech in Oslo on Saturday, December 10th, International Human Rights Day. Next up, Lowndes County and the Road to Black Power. A new documentary looks at the pivotal role one county in Alabama played in the Black Power movement. Stay with us. Blinking. Paralyzed. Flat on my back. This our world is built with endeavor. For every man is for himself. 
Wealth is for the one that wants it. Paradise. If you can earn it. History's the reason. I'm washed up. by Gang of Nobel. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. With the election, the re-election, of Georgia Senator Reverend Raphael Warnock, the first African-American Democrat elected to the Senate from the former Confederacy, and with voting rights on the chopping block at the Supreme Court in Moore v. Harper, a case that could upend democracy. We look now at a new documentary that examines how we got here. This is the trailer for Lowndes County and the Road to Black Power. If you want to go back and understand why we're having these conversations about reparations, why the racial wealth gap exists, you can do no better than looking back at Lowndes County. Lowndes County was one of the poorest counties in the country. It was 80% African-American, and in 1965, there were no black people registered to vote in Lowndes County, Alabama. It was a dangerous time. People were followed. People could lose their jobs. A lot of black people came up missing. That's why it's called Blood Lounge. It is called that because of the absolute unrelenting violence if you're trying to register to vote. They were literally putting their lives on the line. And they still organize, and still they try and vote. We wanted a movement that would survive the loss of our lives. The strength will come from the work together. We weren't just interested in the vote. We were interested in changing who ran the county. In Alabama, you could have an independent party. This was a real effort to have black people participate in government. The white establishment saw it as a fundamental threat. We saw it as a fundamental necessity. This is a play for power. We live in a world that is so heavily shaped by that movement. We have to continue to tell the story of how we got to where we are today. That's the trailer for the new documentary Lowndes County and the Road to Black Power, directed by Sam Pollard and Gita Gandabir. Their film sheds light on the rarely told history of a grassroots movement in Alabama during the civil rights movement that would become, in some ways, the first iteration of the Black Panther Party. In this clip from the film, Professor Hassan Jeffries describes the first time John Hewlett and a group of fellow Lowndes County organizers attempt to register to vote. Lowndes County was 80 percent black. But due to sustained campaigns of voter obstruction and white supremacist violence, had zero black voters registered at the time. March 1, 1965, 
John Hewlett, his wife, a group of 39 others that he had been talking to decide that we're going to go down to the county courthouse and see if we can't get registered to vote. He goes right into the registrar's office, Carl Golson, you know, big old former football player, car dealer. You know, he's one of the county registrars. And, and he sees Hewlett and he's the other black man barge in. Don't you know how to knock? And he was like, I, I didn't come here to knock. I came here to register to vote. I mean, that's throwing down the gauntlet. You know, Golson can't do anything but throw him out. He also says, if y'all are serious, y'all want to register, y'all want to do this, then leave all your names. We want to know who's showing up. Which of y'all have the gall to challenge white power? They were literally putting their lives on the line. Every single one of those folks who showed up, they put their names on a sheet of paper and they brought it back and they gave it to Gulf and said, this is who we are. And then two weeks later, a slightly larger group show up again, saying, look, we're back, right? You have our names, you sent people to visit us, we lost some loans, we lost some business, but we're back. And then after that second meeting, they realized if we're gonna do this, then we need to be organized. And so in late March, they formed the Lowndes County Christian Movement for Human Rights. In a minute, we'll speak with the directors and one of the people featured in Lowndes County and the road to black power. Sam Pollard is a veteran feature film and television director whose work includes the groundbreaking eyes on the prize and slavery by another name. Sam Pollard has edited over half a dozen Spike Lee films, including Four Little Girls and When the Levees Broke. We also spoke with co-director Gita Gandabir, an award-winning director, producer, and editor. And in Jackson, Mississippi, we were joined by one of the people featured in the new film, Reverend Wendell Paris, former field secretary for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. After the Lowndes movement in Alabama, he founded the Southern Cooperative Development Group and is now with New Hope Baptist Church in Jackson, Mississippi. First, one more clip from the film. It shows how SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, first began working with the Lowndes County movement. There was no place for the SNCC organizers to gather, forcing them to make dangerous drives in and out of town, risking arrest or attacks by white supremacist vigilantes. In this clip, John Jackson describes how his father, Matthew Jackson, turned a small house on their property into a home base for the Lowndes County Freedom Movement and sanctuary for the SNCC workers known as the Freedom House. Cortland Cox, a SNCC worker, and Professor Hassan Kwame Jeffries then describe how, despite the modest facilities, continued organizing in Lowndes County would not have been possible without the Freedom House. When SNCC first comes into the county, they're not staying in Lowndes County, Alabama. They're going back to Selma, where SNCC's regional headquarters was, and they're spending the night there, and then they're getting up early and coming back into the county. And that's dangerous. It's dangerous to be on the highway. So my daddy got an empty house. Y'all come down there and take a look at it. They came down, and my father and soaking them hit right off. First thing he said to him, there's no restroom in the house that's sub-conditioned, but you're welcome to stay here. You don't have to run back to seven. They're not going to come here and mess with you. His land was clear. He didn't owe any money in financing his crops. 
There was no indoor plumbing. There was no water. There was a pump in the back. They had a roof that leaked, and they had one butane gas heater in the house. So when it got cold, you had to go into one room. But it was very, very important to us because it allowed us to be in the county. And this becomes their Freedom House. Uh, this becomes the base of operations for SNCC activists for the next year and a half. They protected us and kept us alive and all the neighbors, people around had guns and they would protect us and they gave us guns to protect ourselves. Since the federal government is not going to protect us, since the state government is not going to protect us, and since the local government is not going to protect us, then we have the right and the responsibility to protect ourselves. Again, yeah. uh, that's uh, Lowndes County and the road to black power. That last voice, Reverend Wendell Paris, former field secretary for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Uh, after the Lowndes movement in Alabama, he founded the Southern Cooperative Development Group and is now pastor at New Hope Baptist Church in Jackson, Mississippi. But, um, Wendell, go back to then uh, what you were just describing and talk about what was happening and the kind of danger you faced um, as a SNCC organizer and the movement you found already in Lowndes that was not getting the kind of attention that other places were around it, from Selma to Montgomery. Well, it's important to know that— uh, Lowndes County is a part of what's called the Alabama Black Belt, and it's a black belt that stretches from the Sumter County, uh, the westernmost county, all the way across to uh, Barber County, the hometown of George Wallace on the Georgia line. It's an area where the, you have this concentration of, of black people. The black belt is named because of the fertile black soil. So black people were brought to the area to uh, pick the cotton. So Lowndes County, bloody Lowndes, as it was known, one of those areas where you had families such as the Jackson family and whole communities that had begun to stand up and recognize that uh, in, the, in these communities where there basically were all type of vigilantism and led largely by the, the political office holders, the sheriffs, the, the chief of police, and, well, all of the... Uh, uh, law enforcement officials, as well as those other uh, collect, uh, elected political positions, such as the, the probate judge, which not only runs the elections, but also hounds matters of chancery in the state of Alabama, then you would, you, if you're talking about a land grab and you're talking about dispossessing people, then your movement needed to reach not only those uh, officers of the uh, 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 law enforcement officers, but you needed to also make sure that you could get your people uh, elected to vote, uh, excuse me, elected to office and then to vote uh, and become a part of uh, the whole Apparatus. In fact, if you have the, the numbers and you have the local organized people, then you ought to take control. You, you, we believe in majority rule in this country. So if you're 80% of the population, then you ought to rule. So that's kind of the, the, 
that helped to form the thinking that went into the establishment of what took place in Lyons County. Understand, there are those communities where people uh, recognized that they needed to band together to defend themselves. And as, uh, as uh, Mr. Jackson's daughter so well put it, Mrs. Henson, um, my daddy said to us, these folks are coming in here trying to help us get ready to vote. We're going to let them stay in our house. And we can do that because I don't owe them anything. And when you have that level of independence coming from small farmers, and that's what largely what you had in Lyons County was, was smaller farmers, 40 acres or more or less. But it brings with it, that land brings with it a level of independence that you don't know otherwise. So that's kind of the backdrop for me of being a resident of the Alabama Black Belt basically all of my life. Get it down to beard. Um, one of the things you do in this film is feature women's voices. I'm looking at a, the Washington Post from years ago, and the first line is, by all rights, Ruby Sales should have been killed on Friday, August 20th, 1965. Can you set up this clip um, in Lowndes County and the road to black power of Ruby? So Stokely Carmichael, you know, later known as Kwame Ture, uh, had a complete disregard for white authority um, and an irreverence that I think really inspired her. And at 17, uh, which is, you know, incredibly young and incredibly brave, she went down to Lowndes County and was arrested shortly after she arrived there. And she and um, a fellow uh, a fellow activist, Jonathan Daniels, who was white and had come also come down, had come down from the north to support the movement, along with a few other folks, were walking. Uh, they had been released from—you know, they were held in, in the local jail for a few days and then were subsequently released without notice, without warning. Suddenly, they were told to leave or, you know— or they were threatened. It was basically a get out of here, or, you know, we're going to—or I'll blow your brains out by, you know, and by local law enforcement. So they left and walked down the road to um, a, a, a small store that where they were thirsty, it was very hot, and they went— they tried to enter the store to get um, some soda. And uh, Tom Coleman, who was the sheriff at the time, uh, he, he basically threw open the door and with a shotgun and uh, and shot at Ruby Daniels, who was standing, who was the first one to try to enter the store. And I'm sorry, shot at Ruby Sales, who was the first one to open the store and the door to the store. And Jonathan Daniels, um, as Ruby recounts, grabbed her and pulled her down and out of the way and took the shot and subsequently was killed. And um, another uh, another white—another um, white, another white, I believe, pastor was also injured in the shooting. And so uh, it was a murder. Jonathan Daniels was, was literally murdered. And it's—this is, again, another one of the, the stories we don't hear much about. I mean, we have heard about the murders of other civil rights workers, particularly civil rights workers, during— the freedom struggle, but this one, not so much. And I think that, again, it's sort of a purposeful—it's um, it's purposeful in that the story of Lowndes County, again, perhaps, a, you know, a story that 
is more threatening or dangerous to the powers that be because of the type of organizing that it involved. Um, it seems like it has been deliberately left out of uh, out of the, our, the narrative of history. Stay with us. When we come back, we'll bring you that clip of Ruby Sales and more from this remarkable new film. The film is called Lowndes County and the Road to Black Power. We've been speaking with Gita Gandabir, who is co-director with Sam Pollard of the film, back in 60 Seconds. Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we continue to look at this remarkable new documentary about the local movement for voting rights during the civil rights movement that's rarely included in history books, it's called Lowndes County and the Road to Black Power, directed by Gita Gandabir and Sam Pollard. We spoke to them on Friday, along with the Reverend Wendell Paris, former SNCC field secretary. In this clip, we meet Ruby Seals, uh, Ruby Sales, organizer with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, in Lowndes County, Alabama. And the first day that I was in the county registering voters, and the sheriff put a gun to Stokely Carmichael's head and said, nigger, tonight you'll be in hell. Stokely said, and tonight hell will be integrated. That was it for me. I was in. I come from this very sheltered environment, and suddenly I'm face to face with all the heinous crimes of white America. It was nothing to be riding down Highway 80 and suddenly a pickup truck of white men pulled from the side of the road and start chasing us with their guns hanging out the window. And Stokely Carmichael would have to drive 90 miles an hour to make sure that they wouldn't kill us. I mean, fear is just going to immobilize you. You're dead already. So there's no fear here. I just have to learn to drive effectively so that when they chase me, I'll be able to dodge them and they would have run into a truck or run into a ditch or leave them in the smoke. There was no fear here. It was just clever response to survival instincts at its best. <laughs> Reverend Wendell Paris, you know Ruby Sales. Um, how this shaped the movement from there on in? Yeah, well, yes, I knew Ruby Sales 
was what hadn't been mentioned is that she was a student at Tuskegee, where I also was a student at it at that time. And our organization, the Tuskegee Institute Advancement League, which was the student organization aligned with the uh, SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, we'd all gone into Montgomery and into Wells. We had eight fellow students arrested in cell. And after that, then the student body decided that we would go into Montgomery to protest what was happening in Selma and also to protest the actions of Governor George Wallace, who had actually called for the killing of Jimmy Lee Jackson in Perry County, Alabama, Marion, Alabama, which was where the Selma to Montgomery march really started. It didn't start in Selma. It started in Marion, Alabama. And why were they marching in Marion? Because even with a federal court order, even with a federal court order, the Board of Registrars in, in uh, Perry County said, we're not going to allow you to register to vote. So the problem that we see in Lyons County wasn't just uh, uh, suffered by Lyons County alone. Because again, the, all of the state of Alabama, George Wallace called for the killing of civil rights workers. The New York Times reported that he called for, uh, uh, in 63, what turned out to be the killings of the four young girls in Birmingham. George Wallace did that. George Wallace called for the killing of somebody in Perry County and, they, and the state troopers ended up killing Jimmy Lee Jackson. So that's what we had. We had to come to the point of recognizing that uh, as students, you needed to, to move forward and do something. So Ruby, as well as myself, Jennifer Lawson, who you feature there, and well, Bob Mance, uh, I guess he had just left the, being a student at uh in Morehouse, at Morehouse. But all of those folks gathered there in Lowndes County as a result of uh, what had taken place here, uh, historically in the state of Alabama and certainly on the heels of the Selma to Montgomery March. So we knew, knew Ruby from that respect. She's an energetic student uh, at Tuskegee that joined the movement and has remained involved. Reverend uh, Wendell Paris, uh, you are wearing a shirt, as you were in the film, that says Black Voters Matter, which takes us to today. As we right. look at the kind of organizing and the uh, dangers faced in the 1960s, yet still people organized, um, to what we're seeing today out of the 2022 midterm elections the first black Democrat to represent the former Confederacy in the Senate. Uh, Reverend Raphael Warnock has just been reelected. The significance and what gives you hope today? Well, what we see is a continuation of the struggle. You know, a lot of people say, well, the civil rights movement has ended. And that is in error. The civil rights movement has not ended. Uh, there, are, there are other segments of the of the movement that have, have come to the forefront. But we have recognized that, um, you know, one song that we sang in, in SNCC and in the movement was, freedom is a constant struggle. Uh, the struggle continues. Uh, Mrs. Ella Baker taught us that uh, we must continue to organize and, we, and until we have uh, a full citizenship status in this country. What you need to understand is that the 1965 Voting Rights Act, as, as, as important as it is and was, 
is a temporary measure. It is a temporary bill. We still do not have full voting rights in this country. So there's still uh, work for us to do. And Julian Bond, who also worked in, 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 in Lowndes County and was a student at Morehouse and was one of the first to go into the Georgia legislature in 1965, December of 1965, all of those folks who were engaged in our movement recognized that we weren't just in for a two or three year lifetime, um, it's two or three years of struggle, but we're there for the lifetime. So the lifetime struggle for full rights as not only citizens, but as full human beings is still before us. We, we worked with folks in Southwest Georgia who are also a part of SNCC in 20 counties of Southwest Georgia for the uh, election there in, uh, in, uh, in, in 2021 to get both Mr. Oscar and uh, uh, Reverend Warnock elected. We moved uh, uh, the needle from uh, about 20 counties where we had a 10, we moved from a 10% to a 22% increase in the election runoff is what it got them elected. If you have those kind of movement in a runoff election, then you know that uh, a lot of work that has been done and is still being done on the ground. So you have to have and you have to maintain uh, uh, a movement base at the local level, and you build on that base. The reason Lyons County was so important was because you built local people, you built indigenous uh, people to take the leadership role. Yeah, you always need leadership, but who's going to provide that leadership? So Lyons County is a perfect example of a local people organizing and continuing to, to organize and sustain the movement. And that's what we see being so successful in uh, in Georgia. We're going to end with the two directors. Sam Pollard, I wanted to ask you that question again about the significance of embracing the term black power, which is uh, part of the title of this film, Lowndes County and the Road to Black Power. The Black Panthers, as the symbol for Lowndes County, which the Black Panthers adopted the organization, well, I think one of the things that's important to say is this, uh, and I'm going to really just piggyback off Wendell, what Wendell just said. You know, the struggle continues, and the notion of black power that Stokely so elegantly talked about in Mississippi is about the idea that's about political empowerment, economic empowerment, you know, and that's what Stokely was talking about. That's what this should always be about in terms of black power. And as, as people, are, you know, people were terrorized when they heard that term from Stokely back in the 60s. But they shouldn't be because it's really for black people to empower themselves economically and politically. And the other thing to remember, too, is, as Wendell said, the struggle continues, even though it's fantastic that Raphael Warnock is now the senator, one of the senators from Atlanta, from Georgia. That doesn't mean that you, you have to stop. You know, I mean, we know that there's always people out there who are going to try to stop us from voting, stop us from being empowered in our communities. And the, and we have to continue to fight and continue to, to continue the struggle. And Gita Gandabir, um, if you can address this issue of the symbol of Lowndes County, um, not only the image, uh, but what that also means for today and what you learned in making this film. 
Sure. I think, you know, what's so interesting for me is uh, um, Sam mentioned that I didn't want to make this film alone earlier, and I just wanted to give some context to that. To me, representation is incredibly important on a team, and um, I wanted to make sure that there was a director or co-director at the helm of this with me who had the lived experience of this time period, who was of the community, and um, and also could, you know, could—had deep ties to the South. And I think there is so— the, we, again, in the, nar the narrative of the civil rights movement um, has been, I think, shaped by, again, the powers that be. We, you know, the foundation of our country is, um, is ultimately uh, white supremacist, Christian, uh, patriarchal. And I think those are things that we have to consistently work to dismantle. And in this film, we saw a movement that—, that essentially, again, a leaderless movement that did that work. And it is—it's really—there's a model here in this film that any community can follow when it comes to seeking, again, power. And in order to build a true democracy, we know that, as Ruby Sales so eloquently puts it, that black power can—and uh, and white supremacy cannot coexist in a true democracy. So we—, we I think it's—the onus is on all of us to, to work towards that within our communities. And again, um, what happened in Lowndes County is, doesn't have to be specific to a community in the South, such as Lowndes County. Again, this is a model for organizing everywhere. And I think that's what I really took away from it, um, the, you know, again, the, the bravery that the people of Lowndes County uh, showed and continue to show today, right? Lowndes County remains one, of, remains one of the counties in the country that has the highest voter turnout. And that, to me, mm -hmm. is phenomenal. I mean, the, the, the goal, too, is, uh, as Mr. Paris and so many others have said, the idea is to build a movement that survives the loss of our lives in our own communities. So I think that also is a really important point that I took away from that. That's Gita Gandhabir award-winning director, producer, and editor, co-director of Lowndes County and The Road to Black Power with Sam Pollard. Gita recently directed the HBO series Black and Missing and won a 2022 NAACP Award for Best Directing and an Independent Spirit Award for Best Documentary. She's worked with filmmakers Merchant Ivory, the Coen Brothers, and Robert Altman. Sam Pollard is a veteran feature film and television director whose work includes the groundbreaking Eyes on the Prize and Slavery by Another Name. Sam has edited over half a dozen Spike Lee films, including Four Little Girls, about the bombing of the Birmingham church, and When the Levees Broke. We spoke to them on Friday, along with the Reverend Wendell Paris, former field secretary for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. After the Lowndes Movement in Alabama, he founded the Southern Cooperative Development Group and is now at the New Hope Baptist Church in Jackson, Mississippi, where we spoke to him. Lowndes County and the Road to Black Power is now playing in theaters and streaming online at Apple TV and Amazon Prime. We end with the words of Senator Raphael Warnock at his victory speech for after his reelection last week. There are those who would look at the outcome of this race and say that there's no voter suppression in Georgia. 
Let me be clear. Just because people endured long lines that wrapped around buildings some blocks long, just because they endured the rain and the cold and all kinds of tricks in order to vote, doesn't mean that voter suppression does not exist. It simply means that you, the people, have decided that your voices will not be silenced. Senator Raphael Warnock is the first black Democrat to be elected to the Senate from the former Confederacy. And that does it for our show. Democracy Now!'s Juan Gonzalez is giving his final farewell talk today in New York before he moves to Chicago. He's speaking today at 6.30 p.m. at the CUNY Graduate Center at 365 Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. Juan's final speech will be on Latinos, race and empire. You can visit democracynow.org for more details. On Friday, he spoke at the CUNY School of Labor and Urban Studies about 50 years of defending and chronicling America's workers. And you can go to democracynow.org for his Columbia Journalism School address about his 40 years fighting for racial and social justice in journalism. Today's speech at 6.30 p.m. will be streaming online. We'll link to it at democracynow.org. DemocracyNow.org. Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Fels, Mike Burke, Dina Gester, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warnoff, Tarina Nadura, Sam Alcoff, Tamari Asti, Joe John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Honey Masood, Dennis Moynihan. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.